HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. The great state of Wisconsin is home to the only master cheesemaking program outside of Switzerland. Learn more about Wisconsin's cheesemaking history at wisconsincheese.com. This episode is brought to you by you. Go to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate to become a member today. Welcome to the Grape Nation, your weekly wine journey. Our guest is Aldo Som. We'll talk to Aldo about his new book, Wine Simple. We'll taste. Aldo was kind enough to bring in one of his wines, a Salmon Crocker. We'll talk about it later. I'm your host, Sam Ben Ruby. Stay with us for the Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We bring wine to the people. All right, Aldo Salmon is an award-winning sommelier, including the best sommelier in America. He's been the wine director at the legendary Three Michelin-starred Le Bernardine restaurant in New York since 2007. In 2014, along with Le Bernardine, Aldo opened the eponymous Aldo Salmon Wine Bar. Aldo also makes wine with Australian winemaker Gerhard Crocker for their Salmon Crocker label. Aldo Salmon's new book, Wine Simple, a totally approachable guide to wine is now available, and we'll talk about that. Welcome back to the Grape Nation, Aldo. Hello, thank you for having me. I like saying welcome back because I like having you on. I love being here. All right, so before we get into the book, because I want to spend uh, some time talking about the book, um, I want to ask you a few things. So you've been in the business a while. You've been at Labernadine. What are you pushing? Thirteen, fourteen years. Twelve years. Twelve years. Twelve plus. So I'm just curious. During your tenure, how things have changed in the restaurant world at Le Bernardine, the wine world, wine service? I mean, what are the things that stick out to you? Oh, we evolved big time. I mean, we constantly evolve at Le Bernardine anyway. Well, uh, you don't keep your three stars unless you do. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> you have to work very hard for that. Right. Uh, and you have to be very committed for that, too. So um, that changes you as a person. Um, 
but it, we evolve all the time. Also, the teams changed uh, quite a bit. You know, when I started Le Bernardin 12 years ago, we were four sommeliers. Now we're eight. Right. Yeah. And I have a phenomenal team. So let's talk about that. That was one of my other questions. You have a large staff. It's funny, in New York, I, I had Kevin Zraeli on years ago, and he said there used to be seven Psalms in all of New York. You know, now there's eight at Bernadine. So I guess that's one of the changes. But one of the things that you believe in and actually execute is diversity, um, women, age, all of that. I mean, talk to me a little about the staff, and, and you can get specific. Because there's some very interesting people, not just in wine, but as people, you know, that you're lucky to be graced with. Well, I mean, it's a very trendy topic today. Uh, for a man, you know, in my age, um, being white, it's just kind of a dangerous topic to talk about. But look. Right. We're not going to sit here and talk about it. No, no, no. But it's I what, agree with What you. I'm saying is, uh, look, we're in 2020 almost. Um, we doing this at Le Bernardin's since all along um i mean my my team was female dominant right from the get-go and i nourished that and look but it's also it's not only that we focus on that that's just what we are if we have a talent in front of us and if we look at the person that's what we wanted to embrace and look i get i mean i can bring in numerous of examples this we had to start them at the wine bar you know you have to have the right attitude. You have to be, and I put myself into a client's position. When I interview them, while I ask wine questions, I look, you know, and put myself in a customer's position. Can I listen to that person for eight courses in a tasting menu with the wine pairings? And if I get a clear yes, all I want to see is, is the passion. All I want to see is the drive. Right. And sometimes, you know, you have people in front of you, you know, their knowledge base is greener than the dollar bill. But that you can push, that you can enforce. Um, the attitude you cannot change, it's, that's impossible. So, I mean, that's a good point. So the most important thing is when you're sitting with someone is that they exude passion, personality, interest, knowledge. Yeah, right? and then you I see... I mean, you don't have to be the most wine-knowledgeable, savvy person. I don't think our clients necessarily look all the time for that. Uh, our right. clients look for someone who is able to listen to them someone who is able to, you know, adjust to their knowledge base and connect with them. That's ultimately what you want. Again, you look at the person, do I feel comfortable? Is the chemistry right? Uh, you don't have to know all the seven sub-regions of Vigna Verde because there's very few client base <laughs> who will ask you that. Right. Uh, that's often confused, you know. People are overloaded with... Um, the master sommelier test info. Yeah, but uh, again, there's a very limited uh, group of people who will, will ask you that. Of course, it's knowledge is always important, no matter what. Experience, uh, you know, especially working many, many years, uh, that's extremely important because you get to know certain scenarios. You know the outcome um, by default, by, by the experience itself, you know. How much, um, after you identify a person, how much mentoring and teaching? I mean, there's oh, this probably starts, nobody better at it than you. This starts from the get-go. Uh, to me, I care for every single one of them. And look, we all have problems, but we have to leave that, leave that behind with the moment you step on the floor. Right. So that's a switch you pull in your brain. But I mentor and my... most people do that? I mean, they're... No, it's hard. It uh, is hard. Again, that's the shifting part. Okay. 
And that's changing you working, especially at Le Bernardin, that changes you as a person, in a sense, you know, you, you grow up, you become more mature, you, you're able to hold much more pressure. Because again, the three stars, you have to work very hard for them. Um, and nobody wants to hear, I'm sorry. Right. So For sure. <laughs> but so, you know, you nourished and you set also a, a ground up where they start training with each other, where they start quizzing each other, where they start, you know, going outside on tastings with each other. And then, of course, you, you train with them or you mentor them also because personal problems encounter and then you put your opinion onto that. Right. And, or connect them. If I can't help, I connect them with somebody else. So you nourish that. But to me, also, one thing is often important that changed significantly is in today's world, especially with the millennials, they want to have their own projects. They want to strive. Now, of course, old school, you will basically block that. And no, I tell them, listen, you cannot only you know, live off the reputation of the restaurant. I mean, of course, it's great. No right. doubt about it. However, uh, life has to so much more to offer. But Well, you have people that are writing books. Making yeah. their own wines. But look, it's... I mean, talk about other things besides being on the but floor. But look, that's the biggest gratitude to me uh, when they strive. Right. Forget about me. Uh, look, you you uh, encourage it. I, you encourage it and when they strive and when you get to see... Look, for me, this is the greatest thing when people come into Le Bernardin and they ask for Marie or they ask for Sarah right. or they ask for Barbara. And I think the wealth of what we have at Le Bernardin is we can cater. Look, it's always a difference. We see this all the time. We have French clients, we have Brazilian clients, we have uh, Chinese clients, and so on and so on. We have the wealth within the team to cater specifically to that, uh, to that client group and give them, as a result, a much better service. Because we know that. Right. You, you said something interesting. You said that you would put people on the floor at the wine bar to kind of either break them in or test them and then, I guess, bring them. What would you do before the wine bar is, what, six, seven years old? Or no, not the even, wine, three or four years. Yeah, that would change significantly. Before that, you didn't have that that it's very searching hard. or training ground, right? It's very hard for an outsider to step into the dining room at, at Le Bernardin and start, I mean, it's challenging. Did that offer you the opportunity to bring in, let's say, more millennials or interesting people or... You know, because the wine bar is an easier place to start in or break up. I mean, break, break in at. Um, it's probably getting comfortable with. Uh, also, Midtown, you get to see the audience a little bit, and it's kind of you know where you you get your knowledge base is getting nourished up, your experience is getting nourished up, and at the same time they start training back. It goes back and forth right. a little bit, and that turned out to be an incredible, great resource. Um, and, you know, it cheers them up to work harder uh, to get, obviously, to the to get promoted to Le Bernardin. Right. Back in the day, you know, they moved on to a different restaurant, and now we can keep them uh, in our team. And look, uh, I, I work with Katya, who works with me um, for over eight years. What's Katya's title? Katya uh, Chef Sommelier. She's the Chef Sommelier. She's the yeah. Chef Sommelier. Um, then I have Marie, Sarah, uh, Maya. Uh, right. Cameron, who came from the wine bar, uh, now five plus years. Right. Again, there's very few places who have kind of that track record with people staying that long time. Right. And that's where your consistency comes in. Well, you aspire to get to the best and the top, and well, I guess when you're there, well, we you, have you to live stay it in, there and you know relish the opportunity. You have to live it in front of them. Yeah. Right. Uh, but of course, look, it's not also important. Um, 
we don't have only women, we have men as well, of course, because I think the, it's always healthy to have a balance within sure. the team. And uh, there's some great talented people, whether it's Cameron or Brandon or Joe. It's healthy. Right. I agree with that. Um, I think it's interesting that you can do things at the wine bar that you can't or don't have to do in the restaurant. Um, so I'm guessing that's sort of why you opened it. So tell me why you did open the wine bar. I know there's a story behind it, but the type of wines and... Uh, from the wine the, perspective? Yeah. Okay. I mean, it, it, I think it's great for you because it lets you broaden your horizons and, you know, bring in certain tastes. Well, at Libernatan, obviously, I'm a very spoiled brat. Yes. But uh, when I get to taste be. all these crazy wines. Uh, but at the wine bar, you know, I get to taste also wines I particularly enjoy. Um, you know, you cannot drink every day. Or to me, I find it at one point boring. Uh, of course, we like, love Romani Conti. Of course, we love Aubryon and Petrus and Omorashi. It's but fair to say at Le Bernardine that Burgundy, Bordeaux, Italians, Barolo, Super Tuscans, and even Cali cabs rule Northern yeah. Rhones. But that's not necessarily the story no, at... Sometimes, you know, if you're in the summer and want just a crisp, fresh glass of Albarino, that just to me is as gratifying. It's in the context. Uh, or if you have a nice little Sangiovese, uh, which you have if you pasta at home, that's just as gratifying. And sometimes I'm just not mentally in the mood to be really challenged by a glass of wine and associate. Just, you know, give me a glass of wine with my pasta in a simple Italian way. Right. And so, it doesn't have to be always fancy. Even for me, I get also bored at one point because I'll, I want to learn. I want to research. I, I take joy in that. So let's get specific. Tell me about, because I've been in and out of there a few times, and I've seen some interesting wines that I've seen at other <laughs> places. Tell me about some of the wines. Let's focus towards um, the wine bar that are exciting you, some regions um, you know, that you're featuring, that you've been on for a while, you know, some specific wines. Tell me about some interesting uh, stuff. I mean... <laughs> Uh, I always look out, I always research, I taste, uh, I taste even when I'm off, um, and look what's new. And I think the wine world was never as exciting as it is now. Agreed. Um, because back in the day, of course, you know, when I, when I started learning wine, there was France, <clears throat> again France, and then was Italy and a little bit of Spain, and there were occasional couple of Californians sprinkled in. That was kind of the main areas uh, and countries. Now... Look how many young people uh, trained with French winemakers, trained with Californian winemakers, Spanish or Italian, and then they went back. Now look, go to Austria. I mean, I'm Austrian, obviously I'm biased, but look how exciting Austria is right now. If people finally get kind of over their fear of reading that complicated label, right. <laughs> you get a great amount of deal out of your wine and they're incredibly enjoyable. And on top of it, they fit with your food. So Austrian wines, no are question, great quality, great value. Taste German uh, German Pinot Noir, Spätburgunders. They're right. incredibly good. Uh, they finally dialed People don't the think Pinot when they think Germany. No, but uh, climate change helps them right now, right. big time. So, and you don't you don't spend a fortune to that. Those can be very very inexpensive for the quality ratio you get. Look to Santa Rita Hills and Santa Barbara County right now. What kind of movement do you have in there? You think of California Chardonnay. Uh, creamy barriocchi, you'll be badly mistaken when you go there. Same on Pinot. I mean, we've seen this on uh, on some three. 
um, right. what turned out to be how you know Raj, the, Pars. the Mandela Code and actually I picked it too. I thought I that's mean, right. You were you were on that panel. Uh, no, I picked actually, actually the wine. And right. I thought that is actually a massive statement for the United States that this wine can you know is in the top three. Uh, you know, as, alongside with Burgundy. And compared to Burgundy, and look at the price, price range. Wise, it's, it's literally a <laughs> fraction. Mean, everyone can pick a great two hundred dollar bottle of wine, but you know when you go then below hundred, then things start looking a little different. Right. What about Spain? Any interest in Spain? Uh, well, my team mocks me. Uh, Why? They stopped now, but uh, last year was in a heavy uh, Spanish rent because, aside of Rioja, Priorat, and Ribera del Duero, uh, I think the young, uh, the new Spain is right now just. Booming. Uh, Catalonia and the Canary Islands and Ribera I mean, Sacra, right? Look what's happening there and the quality of wines you get there. And it doesn't cost much. And taste all these Albarinos. Albarinos, 10 years ago, they were supermarket wines. Nobody, Everybody low-browed them. Uh, and right now, those are really exciting wines. Um, again, for me, sometimes what I often observe, and again, I'm a seasoned sommelier, I often observe we always struck to the label. That's almost more important than actually what we really have in our glass. Right. And to me, I always um, think about Dark Polaner's back labels, uh, the importer, where I say, you know, open up your mind and taste. And I think that's just so important. That's why me personally, as much as sommeliers love blind tasting, to me, that's the biggest part of blind tasting is because you're neutral. Right. Forget about if you get the wine right. That's, to me, sometimes irrelevant. But you judge the wine on a neutral base rather than you, you judge it on the, on the label. Right. Um, we can't not talk about champagne. I'm guessing... Oh, that's a... <laughs> I'm guessing Libertadine was always a celebratory place, so champagne was always in the mix. But the perception... Uh, now the versus then, champagne's having more than its moment at um, the wine bar and at the restaurant? Uh, uh, both. I think America is getting finally l- slowly out of that notion that uh, champagne is only here to toast or start a meal. Right. Um, I think the best... I used to always say, make fun of it, and of course, I'd almost kill Derek Repair, <laughs> that Austrian wine works with his cuisine absolutely great. I think champagne does even better. Mm. Um, it's, to me, the best food-pairing wine, uh, period. Of course, you know, with your entree, a glass of red wine is good for the soul. Yeah. Uh, however... I, I agree with that. If you have to pick one bottle of wine which carries you through a couple of courses, uh, champagne will be I, one of the best choices. I was looking for a takeaway, and that's the takeaway, yeah. how versatile it is and how multi-course it could be. You know, maybe not with a bloody steak, but, you know, I'm not, I'd do that anyway. But, I mean, very few people, you know, cook an eight-course tasting menu at home and right. make it with one bottle, uh, you know, that you have one bottle of wine with it because you don't make an eight-course wine pairing at home. I right. mean, very few. <laughs> True. Um, all right, I want to talk about the book. Uh, there's a lot to talk about. Um, I read it cover to cover, and there's a shitload of information. <laughs> um, but I have to ask you the um, the sort of the mandatory questions. The first thing is this is a question you posed at the beginning of the book, and you asked, why do we need another book about wine? <laughs> so you brought it up. That's you answer right. it. Um I why mean, do we need another book about wine? You know, why this book? Um, and we'll get into specifics more. 
this whole this question came up. I mean, first of all, I need obviously this book. To me, this is almost like a baby or a project. This would have been not as great if I wouldn't have this epic team behind me. A at Le Bernardin, obviously at the wine bar, because it took a lot of my ment- uh, my thinking capacity a little bit away from that. But also Christine Mulke, who wrote it with me and make this book sound English without any altruisms and uh, being so also. So Christine bo- was your co-writer. Yes. And, and what Elit- was her function? I mean, where did she... She did everything? No, 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 no. <laughs> no, we were... This were many uh, morning meetings. Um, I have it actually in the book to many morning meetings. Then the editing part, we did it over FaceTime. Right. Uh, because you lose... used to bike up 6th Avenue. Yeah, to, I still disagree with her. I mean, I'm a cyclist, <laughs> but to me, that's just asking for trouble. <laughs> By the way, Christine just wrote the book reviews for the food section of this... This past week's New York Times book yeah. review, Books of the Year, which was nice to see yeah. her name there. So um, she made this book sound English. So we met, you know, and talked a lot. And what does that mean, made it sound English? Well, because I don't speak English. I'm from Austria. Okay. <laughs> so she Americanized it or no. uh, what? <laughs> she made it and without any altruisms. Okay. <laughs> she cleaned it up. And then we had also Elena Sullivan, which gave, of course, all the, the great graphics and Matt Blaze. And then Chen Sit, which was our publisher. Uh, she did an enormous editing and was very precise. Again, this was a new project for me. I'm, I'm a sommelier. And the reason why to answer your question completely onto that was... With our Wine Facts Wednesday, which we do at the wine bar on social media, where we give a one-minute quick, in, uh, you know, learning lesson about simple things, what people. So you have the staff at the wine bar. You're sitting around, and Wine Fact Wednesday is. We do this on social media. No, it's okay. where I present. Oh, right, right, right. Uh, a wine I'm fact. Sorry. Right. And I've learned one thing by doing that. You know, we talk about simple things. How do you open a bottle of champagne without being scared? Right. right. How do you store liquor? Uh, all sorts of these simple things where people are scared to ask because they think this is so basic that they look stupid by just asking that question. But then, you know, they don't get the knowledge with it, which is kind of, you know, strange. So and that's kind of what inspired me. And and I see also at the wine bar, you know, how do people order a glass of wine? You know, forget about, you know, being in an office and don't really have the interaction. I see this on a daily basis and I talk to people when they, what are you looking for, you know, and you see them struggling and reading a wine list, you know. Right. So it's all information from the most simple. This is from 28 years experience working the floor. To complex. So the compulsion was, let me get this out on paper and in writing so I can help people. Yeah. Just your body of experience and all of that. Yep. So when... And again, I work on a daily basis at Le Bernardin. I uh, work lunch and dinner. And same at the wine bar. I go back and forth. So let's talk about how you wrote the book. So you're a busy guy. You know, you basically work retail. You're in the restaurant all day, all night. Lunches, dinners, and all that. When do you have time to write? Uh, on my day off. <laughs> okay. And in the morning? But just because you had a day off and it was the morning doesn't mean you're always in the mood. Uh, you well, forced yourself. <laughs> you know, we work at Le Bernardin. You don't have to be necessarily in the mood. Uh, you pull that switch and you make it work. So when did you start? Um, Two things. The idea of writing a book was when and when did you really start, you know, putting notes together and organizing? The idea the started, you know, I mean, one of the big mentors is Eric 
repair obviously for it. He helped me to get this up. The pitching started exactly two years ago. Okay, and that's a relatively short time. Yeah, tell me about it. Two years ago, you know, to <laughs> write and and then the contracts, and then you put the propo- put the proposal in, then you design the proposal, and then on and on and on. So the writing itself was in fourteen months. Okay, so there was vacation days off, early mornings. Yeah, were for those fourteen months, were you always on as far as the book? Like, here's an idea, or I have to jot this down, or I got to get to the table for an hour. I mean, was that, were you consumed with that? I mean, look, yes, but look, wine is my passion. Right, so uh, it wasn't so, work. It's... Yes, it is work, but to me, look, I, get, I wake up in the morning and have a smile on my face. Um, so this is what I love. You know? I mean, wine is my passion, cycling is my obsession. Right. So, and cycling sometimes, I just got off for an hour, uh, did a couple loops in the park and to clear my head and think over a couple of things and then back to the computer. Did the cycling take a hit because of the book? It you suffered. cycled, le- it even suffered. though it was a good release, it, it did suffered. suffer? It suffered. So what does that mean? You put a couple of pounds on or something? Um, yeah, I mean, <laughs> with age that gets increasingly difficult. <laughs> <laughs> so 14 months, and I'm guessing you finished right up to... You we know, finished the, in the June. You, oh, you did finish it. We okay. finished in June, and then, you know, and printing, and handed everything back in, printing, and then until it's marketed and getting out. And it came out when? In October? Uh, November, November 19th. Right. Yeah. So it it's less than a month, which is why you're here now, because we want to talk about it. And the timing is actually perfect because it is the perfect gift oh, it's. for somebody who loves wine or somebody who wants to learn more about wine. Um, Aldo, we're going to take a quick break. Um, we're talking to Aldo Sohm. Aldo just wrote his new book, Wine Simple. He is also the wine director at Le Bernardine and the proprietor of Aldo Sohm Wine Bar. Uh, when we come back, we'll get into the guts of the book. Um, you're listening to The Grape Nation. I'm Sam Ben Ruby on the Heritage Radio Network. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. Did you know that 90% of Wisconsin's milk is made into cheese? And this is not just any milk. When Swiss, German, and Italian cheesemakers first settled into Wisconsin, they chose their new home because of the special terroir of the region. Its soil and water are nurtured by the goodness of glacial sediment, and those elements lend themselves to the very best milk. Today, Wisconsin produces 25% of all cheeses made in the U.S., and Wisconsin cheeses have won more awards than any other state or country in the world. How do they do it? Wisconsin cheesemakers combine their heritage and tradition with nonstop innovation. They were the first state to establish cheese grade standards and the first to require that every cheese plant be overseen by a licensed cheesemaker. Wisconsin is the only place outside of Europe where one can pursue an elite master cheesemaker certification. All of these impeccably high standards mean Wisconsin produces more than 48% of the nation's specialty cheese. This episode is brought to you by you. Heritage Radio Network makes your favorite food podcasts. And now we need you to lend your voice to our community and show your support of food radio. Become a member today. HRN releases 35 weekly shows each week and is a globally respected voice in food media. But believe it or not, we're still a very small grassroots organization. HRN is powered by a small but mighty staff of four people, 
and HRN's incredible hosts who volunteer their time to bring you the best food podcasts out there. Our hosts are experts in their field, whether it's food writing, mixology, culinary history, craft beer, LGBTQ issues, and so much more. And they're committed to making sure that the stories that matter to you keep coming each week. We believe that a thoughtful, committed group can change the world. So join us. Add your voice and support HRN by making a donation of any amount. Go to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. All right, we're back. We're back with my guest, Aldo Som. We have Aldo here to talk about his new book, Wine Simple. Aldo, was was writing the book harder than you thought it was going to be? Not as hard? As fun? Not as fun? I mean, the process? Uh, very hard. Okay. But uh, I like challenges. In, in what way? The amount of work or uh, The amount of time work is 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 obviously a lot. Uh, an hour is often feels like a minute. Really? When you research, um, when you interview other people, uh, we went out and had dinner uh, with young millennials, young foodies, who were interested in food, but uh, were scared and just on the very beginning of wine. So I picked their brain. The whole natural wine topic, uh, another I want to talk to you about that. <laughs> yeah. I think you're a pretty good person to talk about it because of your experience and you've become somewhat of a practitioner. Um, but let's, we'll, we'll naturally, you know, weave into that. Um, when you buy the book and you look at it, it basically breaks down, if you look at the chapters or sections, into four or five sections, you know, that including an epilogue. And I'll tick them off. I mean, the chapters are what is wine, general, um, how to drink. You really teach people how to drink. Um, how to evolve your palate, um, which is sort of the next level thing and something you could teach people. Um, the importance of wine and food um, is a section. And then an epilogue where you have some, you know, anecdotal stuff about making wine and everything. Um, so the first thing is... The first section is what is wine? You know, what is wine anyway? You know, so that kind of kicks the book off. I mean, tell me where you were going with that. I mean, people know what it is made of. It's grapes, right? And you right. ferment it, and then you have white, and then you have red. But then, you know, the moment you get to rosé, people get confused. Is this red and white wine mixed, or how is this made? No idea. No idea. Right. Uh, the whole sparkling topic is a whole new category because... Sparkling is sparkling, but you know, for me, of course, it's not. And then, why is prosecco or why is champagne so much more expensive than prosecco? Things like that. So we break this down, and um, you know what I actually didn't share is when I lived in Austria, I did a full teacher education. I went to university and studied that. So, and that's why, kind of, a, you know, I kind of skinned a little bit and peeled down to the real strong information. What's really important. Of course, you miss out a couple of little details. Right. But, you know, I wanted to connect with the person, and the person connects to me. Right. So we speak on eye level. Right. Um, and again, this book is here just to make you passionate. And um, I use my girlfriend, Catherine, uh, as, a, as an example. She doesn't care about wine. She just cares this glass is delicious or it's not. And She's I interested in drinking it. 
but doesn't care about she doesn't all want to make a science of it. nonsense enough. for her she could care less if is this a book for somebody like that or it's an approachable guide for people who again don't want to make a science out of it but also for people who are seasoned drinkers and still kind of you know certain things they cared about to ask because they're um, they don't want to look stupid right so in this section, it's very extensive as far as how wine is made, literally, grapes, varietals, you know. Yeah, but we broke it always down. Yeah, I mean, it's very visual and it's 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 in like bursts, you mm-hmm. know, it's not a long, you know, dissertation. One of the things in the first section, you do discuss natural wines. Yes. Um, and it was nice to see you approach the topic. Um where is the natural wine movement today? Because I alluded to it earlier. You're somewhat of a practitioner because you serve them. I know you drink them. I know you support them. But I also know the environment you're in, La Bernardine, and even the wine bar. You know, it, it plays a part, but it's, it's not like Frenchette where it's a natural wine restaurant. Where are things at with that? Um, I mean, we could talk this an entire show and I probably know. extend two more with that. Um, look, I think the natural wine movement is an ex- excellent movement because it brings a whole audience to the topic wine, which wasn't there before. So there are people that are coming to wine just because of the natural wine movement. For sure, they read about it. Okay. Again, it's a very catchy So term. we like that, right? And of course, it's also, you know, when we read this, that the wine is not sulfured and uh, uh, there was no chemicals within the vineyards and very minimal intervention in the cellar. Of course, we all like to do that. Right. Now, look, before the book, I was very strong against it because I thought there's a lot of marketing behind it. And, you know, there's, of course, very strong personalities. And, but with the research, I learned one thing because we went out with this, uh, we call them guinea pigs at the end, right? right. I, I don't think that's an appropriate term, <laughs> it's all right. but we used their palate um, because I wanted to see how did these young people taste. And it was very interesting because I, in this experience, I brought champagnes, uh, I brought sparkling wines, I brought Chardonnays, I brought Rieslings from dry to off dry none of the response was as strong as a natural wine. Really? It was fascinating. And I said, and again, this is not easy to understand for someone who gets into wine. So, and the response was the strongest because it said the wine tastes different. It does. It tastes different. Well, what does that mean? And interesting enough, you know, um, and then I sort of as traditional sommeliers, uh, classically trained, I crushed the wine. And all of a sudden, I was the outsider. And the only thing where I got it back was because I observe a lot. That's actually my main job. So I saw, you know, I said, look, one thing I've learned in my experience is no matter how many Parker or Wine Spectator points a bottle has, the best bottle of wine is always the one which is finished first. Right. That's the obvious. Or if you go out, (laughs) if your bottle of wine is finished right after the appetizer. Right. So look. We've reviewed this right now. All the sparkling wines, which you really couldn't care uh, so much, went over your head, empty. Chardonnay is empty. The Rieslings, either they were dry, but even off dry. And again, that's typically also not an obvious one for people. Empty. The only bottle of wine which is still a third full is the wine which you were so excited about. What does that tell us? Exactly. And it was very interesting. So now I ask you now, and let's be honest, would you order another one because you were so excited about it? And they said no. 
So I took this, of course. I was very stimulated. Then I asked Raj Parr. Well, that was the other nice thing. You, As far as the whole book, but in natural wine, you conferred with the Rajas and the Pascalines, yeah. Alice. Uh, yeah. Then I asked Raj a whole question because, and I went through that, and the, the answers were so interesting because you cannot be dogmatic. One thing I do not want to be is dogmatic about things. The Let's book has no dogma to it. Zero. Right. And then I thought that the answers were so interesting, and I thought, you know, one who is on the most forefront is Alice Fearing. So I called her and I said, Alice, uh, you know where I'm standing, but I'm not here to pick an argument with you. I'm here because I don't know anyone more out there and more knowledgeable about that than you. And it was a full-on, full-morning conversation. Christine was writing and recording, like, right. full of, plus a full-page uh, of follow-up email, and it was stunning. I've learned so much. Um, and now, as you know, to me, I did one thing a little bit. I moved also a little bit to the natural thing. One thing I really want to be also very clear about it, and I said, look, this is what I've learned. This natural wine camp is you have the conventional and natural, and this is almost like our politi- uh, political current environment. Right. And I said, this has to stop. Uh, wine is here to get people together. Uh, so let's find the bridge, uh, because typically when you have people on the bar and you put two glasses of wine in front of them, you'll see within five minutes they talk. Right. But we cannot have this separation, uh, you know, uh, if you're not with me, you're against me, and all sort of this stuff. This is wrong. I still, unfortunately, think it exists a little. But I think, you know, we're moving more towards the middle, and that's where we should be. That, to me, typically, the truth is in the middle. It's not in one extreme or yeah. the other extreme. Of I course, mean, I, I'm not for the chemical uh, wine, and I'm not for the mass-produced right. wine. And but nobody's for crappy wine, no. whether it's natural or you it know, doesn't, regular. Exactly. So, um, it's a very good take on the book on that. Um, the next section you talk about, you really talk to people about how to drink. Um, and you tell people, how do you learn what to like? You sort of have a philosophy and all that. How, how, how does somebody learn what to like? What do you, is it as obvious as the question? Uh, no, sometimes people don't really know what they like. And I see this quite often. It actually fascinates me. In the restaurants and all In general. In general. Just walk through New York, uh, you know, um, or do tasting. You have someone experienced next to you, someone who is not experienced. I promise you that person will always uh, look over the other one's shoulder. What does he like and that I like too. Right. But again, look, you might love oysters. I don't. Who is right and who is wrong? Me. Uh, no, it's not. No, I'm joking. <laughs> I mean, but yeah, that's a perfect example. So Oysters are very polarized. Uh, look, um, the wine world is so big. Look, if we follow all the cultish winemakers, there's not enough wine there. And if you just want in the mood for a simple glass of Pinot Grigio, by all means. So drink what you like. Drink what you like. Look, Figure it, out what you like. You will, you will evolve one way or the other. Look, at the beginning, we all start with large Australian Shirazes like the yellow tails and that. And you know what? That's great. Eventually, your palate will evolve. Or not. Can, or not. But it could. Okay, too. So what? So that's your philosophy. Just drink, drink, and learn. Have a good time. Right. Don't forget, life is short. Don't overthink it. <laughs> All right. Then the next section we talk about how to evolve your palate, which obviously is an extension of once you're drinking and you're learning to drink. Um, you talk about trying more and your taste will change. What does that mean? If you keep drinking more, your taste will change? Yeah, by all means. I mean, this what is if food, you find the same something thing. you like? I mean, that's a great thing. But look, sometimes people are more hung up on vintage charge. Is this a good vintage or is this not a good vintage? And 
sometimes you know you have great experience from wines from off vintages uh, because first of all you don't expect anything and you're positively surprised the price board is typically also lower than from a great vintage and so don't get caught up with all not that. necessarily i mean look for the majority yeah. of wines we drink the vintage is important but not that important because by the time uh, they get really to peaking age they're gone already because right. we drink them too young anyway right there was something in the book uh, although I, I couldn't figure this out and it was an interesting thing to me it, it, it was drinking wine against the lunar calendar yes i mean there were like two pages on this it wasn't a little paragraph or picture i mean is that significant um, explain that to me i mean look there's of course an esoteric component to that but if you talk about uh natural wine if you talk about biodynamic farming um of course we can talk also about that endlessly is this a root day is this a leaf day uh What's important, I think, is we always, we humans, have a tendency to blame it always on off of us. Right. Right? The wine doesn't taste as great today because it's not the perfect day to taste. Right? I personally believe it's us humans. Uh, we are less consistent than the wines are because, look, we react with high pressure, uh, high, uh, high pressure, low air pressure. If you right. go in altitude, we smell also different than we do it uh, down here. If it's full moon, we react to that as well. Uh, it's so just we blame really it on the wine. I mean, that. Yeah. If you get if you part in an argument, it's always your partner's fault first. Right. Don't get into that. Uh, um, but I, it's interesting point, you know, to make people disaware. It's legit, I think, though. Uh, yeah. I mean, you, you can, I mean they, you're right. It goes to the biodynamic thing too. But I mean, I think people. It's interesting for me to observe, and maybe uh, compare, and be open about. it. Don't just write it off. I just thought, you know, with all the information, I come across this thing, and I'm like, Jesus, <laughs> this is the. I need you to explain this. All right, the last section in the book is wine and food, which is really something you live. I yeah. mean, you know, you're around the best wines. You know as much about wine as anybody, and certainly you are around the best foods and everything. Um, you talk about how wine can make or break a meal. Totally. Explain. Um, I give you a perfect example. I think people kind of know it, but hearing it from an expert like you would clarify it. Um, look, sometimes I am very passionate about wine. People are often very passionate about wine. And let's say, and I see this often, they get onto these big, bold Cabernet Sauvignons. And they come to Le Bernardin and are very passionate about it and order a Drover Sole or a poached halibut with it. Now, look. Both things can be really great and probably are very good. The trick is they don't really connect. When we look ultimately, uh, and if you want that, of course you can have that. There's no judgment from our end. Not at all. We cannot afford that. And there's also no ego taken there either. But uh, I advise people, look, if you want to maximize your experience, you look for the perfect pairing. A perfect pairing is to me always, you know, it's like with humans. When two humans c connect... Um, they interact and all of a sudden they elevate both together not one dominates the other and once you have that experience whether you realize that or not you leave the place uh, more in harmony and think wow this actually resonates with me that's how it works uh, typically again this can be conscious or unconscious but sometimes uh, you see that the food is, didn't strike me but it's not often because of the food it's more the wine also the interaction is not as clear between both elements 
I mean, how how many people in the restaurant will not take that advice? You know, oh, but that happen that can happen too. But listen, that's again. If I advise you and I tell you, listen, this might be not your best choice, but of course, by all means, if this is what you look for, no problem. Huh? Right. Uh, so wine complements food. We are here in the hospitality industry. Look, we serve, we serve, and make sure people have a great time. Whether we agree with that or not, uh, again, I'm not sitting with you on the table. I think people are. <laughs> I think people are intimidated by wine. I think they get intimidated by sommeliers. Yeah. I think everything you've said in the past hour sort of defies all of that because the people that you bring in and all your philosophies, you know, which are laid out in the book. But a smile doesn't kill anyone, though. No, I mean, yeah, and the customer <laughs> is, in a way, always right, but you want to steer them in the right direction. Um, you finish the book with an epilogue and you talk about a lesson in humility um, by making your own wine. Explain, explain that lesson. Um, I'm speaking candidly and very open to, to that. When I got into this making wine, was um, I obviously was very successful when I competed. Uh, and I thought I knew a lot about wine. And that thought got crushed very quickly. When you walk with winemakers, uh, walk through the vineyards and talk about certain farming differences, um, you get to realize how little you actually really know when it comes to that part. And that actually wasn't the worst. The worst was um, in terms of tasting. How? Uh, look, when I visit, when, or when, when typically someone visits a winery, it's like visiting a large family. Right. They line up the well-behaved children up in the front, and right. the naughty ones are locked away. But the reality is, we learn from the naughty ones the very most. Right. So um, I have also right now. Uh, I spoke with Piero and Chisa today, uh, this morning. You know, from Chakra. Um, I said, look, I can experiment. So an Italian now. winemaker making pinots in, in, in South Argentina. America. Yeah, and also Argentina. the Chardonnay is now with Jean Marco. Right. And you know, Jean Marco is such a mentor to me also because I worked harvest in 2015. Is now I can experiment. Look, being dogmatic often have have strong opinions is a good thing. But if you can, you know, um, get a foundation because I've tried that, and I know the outcome. Right. Um, I've tried the non-sulfuring. I tried the non-fining. This sounds, all, of course, all great. But what is the result I'm getting? And that's the fascinating thing for me as a sommelier. Uh, so that's why I swim sort of in. I mean, this weird position where I'm on both sides. And I get to see also how distribution, import, and export works. So that it had to give you a much deeper understanding. Totally. Of every, I mean, you look at a bottle, and it just means that you know how it got there. You kind of live through it. It's not an easy process you in li- every sense. You live through it. Sometimes you know something is advertised, which you know this can't be true because of this and that and that. Um, and you get also to see the growing pains with it. You know, you see when a difficult vintage is, listen, they struggled with this, they struggled with that. You get to know that. Right. And that's the greatness, actually. And I struggled with that, too. And I said, damn, this winemaking is really hard. So the wine is Solomon Crocker, C-K-R-A-C-H-E-R, Gerhard yeah. Ger- Ger- yeah. Crocker. Um, and we're going to taste it in a few minutes. And you've been making it how long, Aldo? Uh, 2009 was the first vintage. We started wow. with one label. Now we're in four. Wow, we're talking almost 10 years ago. Yeah, yeah. That's amazing. All right. Um, 
I want to subject you to our wine list, but before we do that, what was the hardest thing about writing this book? Any regrets? What was hard? I mean, you love the way it came out. Uh, I actually texted Christine this afternoon. I said, I really miss uh, your croissants. So she the, always brought the, the best croissants. The process, the, the people, process, right? The people. Being with her, I love the croissant. Just with people. Uh, I think this is the very best of New York anyway. The people are the very best. Right. Um, and I miss the research a little bit. Uh, and I miss kind of, you know, for me, it's, it's, it was a little bit like competing. You had to put the entire focus onto this project, cut everything else out. Otherwise, you wouldn't do well or win or. Yeah, it required. It's just it's a little bit setback like that, you know. Where really, it's the full f- focus on. Do you have another book or another idea in you? I know uh, probably not today, but no. <laughs> now can you I'm imagine do, doing this again? Um, I mean, never say never. I learned right. this lesson very quickly before I came to New York. Um, I don't know yet. I have no means. I mean. The book is to the response. First response is uh, overwhelmingly positive. Not in my wildest dream, I would have allowed the dream for half. So, I, this is I humbling. Agree. It's been critically acclaimed, it's been on some people's favorite lists. Um, the book is called Wine Simple, and you can get it at any good bookstore. You can get it on Amazon, right? Yeah. Um, it's available everywhere. Um, you know, I have to say that the book is so chock full of useful information like no other wine book I've seen. I mean, everybody tries to do it with illustrations and pictures and charts, but I'm telling you, this book, it jumps out on you, and if you really need a reference, you know, if you know about wine, but you want to know a little more, you want specifics, this is the book. I mean, it's it's not my thing to... If I didn't like the book, I wouldn't say anything. <laughs> it's not my <laughs> obligation to compliment you, but I really spent time with the book and I really enjoyed it. And knowing you and you know where it came from, I just think it's a very useful, practical you know wine guide. And your idea of approachable and demystifying everything is all there, you know. And kudos to you. I recommend you know that people buy it for themselves. Oh, I'm blushing or, now. <laughs> you know, buy it as, and I sincerely mean that. Um, all right, so nobody escapes the Grape Nation without answering our wine list. We ask our guests five questions. You did this once before. I think what I'm going to do is we'll roll the five questions today, and I post everything on our social media. I think I'm going to do a side-by-side to your questions a little over a year ago and see how... how consistent so, I am. Well, yeah, well, there's... <laughs> consistency is not really the issue it's more about changes or you know any patterns and all that all right so this will definitely be different the first question is what are you drinking now and that's what are you trying what's in your fridge what are you trying for the restaurant what's seasonal you know what what, what's 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 now um my very few days off now, I have champagne, believe it or not. Okay. Always a good answer, um, right, man? <laughs> uh, no, I enjoy the freshness. I enjoy the elegance. I enjoy the mineral component to it. Uh, I enjoy the richness and how long it stays on the palate. Um, as I'm, good as any wine, champagne. It's underrated. And look how exciting this region is right now. All right. So give me a couple of faves that we'll post. I know you're not sitting there drinking... 
you know, Krugs every night or a Salah. No, so nah. give me a couple I of. I wish. I wish. Give me a couple of uh, champagnes um, that you like or you're drinking. Uh, I love La Herte Freire, the ultra. Okay. I think that's a great go-to. So uh, La, ha- La Herte Freire, which one? Uh, the old tradition. Okay. Um, Give me one more. Then I'm a huge fan of Charton Taillet. I mean, that's not a big secret. Okay. Uh, obviously, I'm also a love Beresh. Uh, okay. With well, a passion. Nancy, how do you do? Um, All good ones. Yeah. And but okay, so champagne. That's it's that's champagne. No question about. You I don't mean, need, right now. Again, I'm a that, moody the, drinker. The question is right now. All right. Um, this is a good question and it plays into the book and your expertise and let's compare it to the last time your favorite wine and food pairing Ooh. not something you necessarily eat every day or to think back what you said last time what's just the great Aldo food and pairing what do you enjoy um, I keep it very simple believe it or not on a Sunday I had recently uh, just a simple pasta with some uh, with a tomato sauce okay I had the Pian di Ciampolo from Monteverdine. Okay. Not a fancy wine. It's just so gratifying, so easy to drink. and I agree with you yeah. on that. Um, simple is nice. All right. This, I, I think you can answer this, um, although I don't think you get out much. Favorite wine restaurant and or bar? If you go outside of the wine bar in Le Bernardine, do you ever get out? I mean, who does it well? Who has good wine service? Who's enthusiastic about it? Where's a fun place, you know, to sit? You're not an industry guy that goes out every night, hang until 2 no, in the morning. because I you have to, I have to sustain that. I mean, right. I'm, I'm, again, I'm a seasoned uh, sommelier veteran. I have to function the next day because I work five doubles. Right. So I had a long talk with Bobby Stucky about that. On top of it, how do you maintain the focus? How do you maintain the passion? Bobby's a runner. You're a cycler. You both have that release. Yeah. And uh, if you go out every night, you cannot sustain that. So, but still, when I enjoy it sometimes going out. So you know, I go to Racine's. Uh, Pascaline. Love her. Great place. Um, um, I go also to uh, La Compagnie. Caleb. Uh, Caleb. He's Love doing Caleb. a great job. I'm obviously never upset if I go to Charlie Bird or Pasquale Jones. Right. Those are the guys. See, those are those answers come up over and over again on the show because those are, you know, good, comfortable Absolutely. Places. I go to the Franks. John uh, Patterson. Love them. He's uh, doing a great job there. Now they have the pizza place next door. Say no more. Those are all great answers. All right. This I want to compare to the last time. What's your favorite all-time wine? Now, when I structured the question initially, it was sort of pushing people towards what's the most expensive rare wine you ever drank? It sort of morphed into what's the most important or experiential or something that resonated with you. And that didn't necessarily mean, you know, Petru 61. It was, you know, I got engaged with the shit. What what what's an all-time wine to you? What's I mean, we always talk about how Pinot Noir, how fascinating that grape variety is, and uh, I always say also, listen, it's of course drinking great Bordeaux is a, is obviously a great experience, you know, drinking your '61 Latours and all this, but right. you keep forgetting them. But the moment you get a peaking Burgundy, to me, that's like such an emotional moment where it's kind of 
it messes you up completely. You start behaving like a drug addict. <laughs> You're looking for this experience. It's feeding the habit. No, it's very hard to explain this also to someone, but you're looking for this experience again because it's so magic. And uh, of course, my, my burgundy, which struck me onto that, was a 1980 Latash. And I had another experience just to make this in a more normal way. I had this also, you know, the old friend is at Marcos, uh, that restaurant with it. Yeah. And I had there a 1983 uh, Domentompier uh, Bandol. Ah. And they had this braised pork shoulder with a little bit of this uh, rosemary issue with it. And it was such an epic pairing. Uh, I still think about that. See, that's that's the real answer to the question, a wine that resonates. Yeah. And you it's know, not Tempier kind of, is not the most expensive, fancy. Well, now it but, creep up to that. Well, but yeah, back then I mean, it was 100 bucks a dollar, whatever. <laughs> and it was such an, again, I still think of that, how epic that dish was and that that, that combination was. So those those two wines are two good answers. The last question, and I think you could handle this one, is... We ask our guests to recommend a wine around 15, 20 bucks, recommend a red, recommend a white. And I always preface the question that I have kids in their 20s and they can't bring crappy wine to a dinner or a party. They can't bring in an $11, $12, but they certainly ain't laying out 40 bucks. So how are they impressing? With That's 15? why Wine Simple came in. Right, which that's exactly another thing. good plug for that. And actually, I wasn't sure because you told me I should bring a wine like that. That's why, look, right now is the festive season. Uh, not everybody wants to spend money on champagne. I mean, my favorite champagne well, is one thing. Well, some people can't. Exactly. And that's, you know, listen, you have to start at one point. Look, I started... So recommend a I had red. This, I had this uh, a red. I would take the... Any day, I would take the... Uh, from Vietti di Perbacco, the Nebbiolo. It's a great, easy entry. Uh, I had uh, Elena Corrado Pena Viette on, and she told the story of that wine. That's just a great value for a red. They're super good. Good answer for the red. Then, How about a white? Um, take a, Gruner Vidliner. Uh, that's all right. simple. So Gruner, you can get it, it definitely have to be 15, mine. 20 bucks. Yeah. We said earlier the quality, the value is amazing. You brought in this Roventos uh, Blanc. That fits in there, right? Uh, totally. It's $20, uh, 22 And it's a sparkling from uh, from Spain. Not anymore Cava because Pepe Ravento stepped out because he said it's uh, that's too mass market. They want to make something more unique. Right. And farms it biodynamically. Great product. And it's super, super tasty. So I will post all of uh, Aldo's wine list answers so that you can go out and, you know, we'll share them with you and all the wines we drank today. Good job on that, Aldo. Like I said, we're going to do a side-by-side and let's see. See how that works out. For some reason, I don't think it's going to be too crazy. I'm a seasonal drinker. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, different season then. I have to look up what date you were on and we'll see what time of the year it was. All right, we wrap the show up with a segment called The Weekly Wine Sip. I asked my guests if they would kindly bring in a bottle of wine. It only makes sense for Aldo to bring in his own wine, the Somme and Crocker. Um, Aldo, tell me a little more about the wine. We have a few minutes, vintage, type of wine, characteristics, and then we'll evaluate it in the glass. Me and my wine tasting team of Nancy and Allison, okay? Now we have pressure today. Mm. So this is the Sommerkracher Grüner St. Georg. So this is a single vineyard. Uh, it's a little unique Grüner Wettliner because it's grown on limestone-rich soils with a lot of fossils in there. So this reminds you more to Burgundy. Um, because of the limestone? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, I mean, look, 
Grevedina often is based on Lus or Nace. And of course, if you make those wines taste very, very different by default. And here we had to work also with Stockinger barrels uh, and some used barriques, five-year-old barriques, just to soften them out and make them more smoother. And the wine has power, and what I always look for is textural wines. <coughs> of course, we make if you want to have something simple, you, you can have the Grenadina Lion, right? Uh, which is I think that's what we tasted last exactly. time. Exactly, easy to drink. What's fresh. the vintage year on this? This is 2016, so I this is the current release. Let's pour it out. Spread the love, Aldo. Uh, I'm old school. I do the ladies first, if that's okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. All right, the wall is Aldo pouring. Nancy forgot, no, Allison forgot to take her glass. I still have champagne. Okay. I drank all my champagne. So, Aldo, let's evaluate this wine. So, first, let's go color. (coughs) Kind of a light golden yellow, Well, in this light setting, it's obviously very, very difficult. You know, the best time to taste wine is uh, in the morning with having a regular daylight and a white tablecloth. Obviously, the moment you have yellow light, uh, kind of it becomes sheer impossible. But I, yes, typically it's a yellow, uh, um, pale yellow uh, color with a little green influences in there or right. reflexes. Beautiful color. All right, let's go nose now. There's a beautiful nose. It's definitely open. Some nice fruits in there. You're the expert. Give me the nose descriptors. To me, the, the, um, the wine is obviously very clean. Um, uh, the wine is super mineral driven. When you say, tell our listeners, when you say clean, yep. when you're sniffing smelling a wine what does clean mean clean means always when you have uh, no mushroominess uh, no funkiness so kind of no distractions just uh, the the wine the fruit chemical components so that's what I look for very pure flavors also so you got clean nose agree 100% what else are we getting on the nose Uh, in this this, uh, you have also very citrusy tones Mm -hmm. you have a little bit of ginger as well in there yes and to me a lot of green apples in there too all right, let's go mouthfeel. Let's throw it over the tongue, swish it around. And let's talk about mouthfeel first. The wine is bone dry. There's no sh- uh, sugar at the, uh, the peak. No, it's a medium. Medium, medium body, plus. too rich. It's, it's rich, right. And the longer you have it on the palate, the richer it becomes. There's freshness on the side. And to me, the wine is... It's quite long-lasting on your palate, and it increases more and more and more. And yet, you get the freshness and the elegance. It's incredible. Um, all right, let's finish with the palate. Does the palate reflect the nose descriptors? Not necessarily. What else are we getting on the to palate? To me, there's much more going on. Uh, I think you need typically a little bigger glass, just a burgundy glass, to have mm-hmm. this wine evolve more. Uh, and I think there's this kind of silkiness, and there's a little Incredible. bit... The phenolicness is in there, too, which makes this wine really appealing and almost inviting having another sip. Yeah. And still, after these 50 seconds we talk, the wine is still present. Definitely mouth-filling, mouth-coating, um, lingers. And that typically is always quality, but the moment you have something lasting that long. I mean, it lasts almost as long as the champagne. What's the uh, approximate retail on this? Uh... $35. Okay. So an incredibly delicious wine yep. um, for that. What's the um, perfect pairings for this? To me? Yeah. Uh, scallops. Scallops. If okay. it, will, uh, it has a, the a richness of body for the scallops I mean, and the sauce. Meant to be. Or if you have some lobster dishes or some langoustine dishes, I mean, this is just easy to work with. So 
You like this wine, Nancy? Allison, you like it? It's a very rich, delicious wine, right? Um, kudos to you, Alan. That is the uh, Soman Crocker. What's the designate? Uh, St. George. St. George. Okay. Because it's made in the village, St. Georgen. Right. And that's where uh, it's the last remaining wine. We always knew in Austria the two parents, uh, one parent of Grüner which is Traminer. Right. But we never knew the second parent until a couple of years ago. Ooh. And there's one last uh, one wine left, uh, and that's called St. Georgen. And it's in the town of St. Georgen. That's, that's where it is. 200 yards it. away from the vineyard. Little history lesson yeah. there. Um, all right, Aldo, we have to wrap up. That was over an hour. I have quickly. to head back into service. I know. you know, No rest for the weary. Um, <laughs> thank you for coming in. Um, if you have a question... Suggestion, wine happening event, hit me up at Sam at the com. That's Sam at the com. We always ask you to subscribe to the Grape Nation podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Follow us on Facebook. On Facebook, we're at the Grape Nation. On Instagram, we're at S Ben Ruby. On Twitter, we're at Ben Ruby. I know it's all confusing, but. You'll find it. You can always use the hashtag the Grape Nation and everything will pop up. As I mentioned earlier, we will post Aldo's wine list answers. I'll post the wines that we drank today. Thank you to my friend Nancy for bringing in champagne, a Pierre Gimenez. It was delicious. Um, so, Aldo, we talked about it before, but let's remind people again. You can get the book at any good bookstore and order it on Amazon, right? No problem. No problem. Online, it is easy. called Wine Simple, and that's what it is. Aldo, if we want to follow you on social media, where do we follow Aldo? Aldo Som Weinberg? Aldo Som or, uh, or at Som Bar. S-O-H-M Bar or yeah. Aldo Som A-L- And A-L-T- sometimes I appear on Eric Repair. Okay. <laughs> right. He will do that. <laughs> All right, Aldo, thank you so much for coming in. I know you are so busy. One of the nice things is I've had the opportunity to see you a bunch of times in the last month at that Primum Vinay family thing. It's good. It was unbelievable. Um, we had that incredible German dessert wine. Egan Müller. Oh, my God. Oh. Um, we did the interview. I interviewed. This is another Grape Nation um, podcast you should listen to. Aldo Sommelier, Sarah, Marie, and Katya. Terrific about the environment there. So thank you for coming in. Thank you for talking about your yeah, book. Yeah, they asked wines. me about you. I said, why is he not coming to Le Bernardin like with us? I said, because I'm Aldo Soma. I have to go to Brooklyn. Well, uh, He comes for you to, uh, to Manhattan. <laughs> no, the vibe is better when you're here, all right? I like when you come here. So thank you for making the trip out here, and it won't be that hard to get back. No. Thank you to our engineer, Jeet, and everyone at the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sam Ben Ruby, and you're listening to The Grape Nation. The Grape is simple cast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. 
Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. And thanks for listening.